Father God, as we come before your word this morning, we're considering a topic in which uh, is appropriate for the church to consider, and yet uh, it is a broad topic. It is something where uh, many places in Scripture speak to the second coming of Christ. And so we pray that you just ground our understanding this morning through the power of the Spirit, that we leave here with a better understanding of how we are to await that second advent, and uh, just bless the going forth of your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So... The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the first advent, and today we're going to look at the second advent, the second coming of Christ, uh, something that um, really, when you consider it, this is not usually the text that people first run to, but I think it's a, it's a helpful anchor text from which we'll begin in and uh, and then we'll, we'll move through a couple of things when it comes to the second coming of Jesus. Because as we reflect on what was accomplished in the first advent, we also want to know what we're looking forward to in the next one. Now when it comes to an illustration of what a Christian is to look like in one sense as we await the second coming of Christ... It's been used uh, many times, uh, I think C.S. Lewis used this illustration, but others did as well, of the idea of the vanity mirror. You know, the mirror that is in your home, homes are built with these kinds of mirrors, with those bright halogen lights, or sometimes uh, a woman uh, might buy one on her own and have a place where she puts on her makeup, one of those bright mirrors. And why do we use mirrors like this? We use mirrors like this because inside in our home, it's dim. And when we go outside, when we're exposed to the light of day, uh, we want to make sure that we saw, you know, we worked on those imperfections. We worked on those things in our, our body of, that is breaking down. We, we, we made ourselves look as good as we could, which it doesn't always impress us, doesn't always say much about who we are. I, I know today I, I don't really look at the mirror very well, and I got over here to the church, and I'm looking, I'm going, why are certain hairs spiky? These sorts of things. But we look at those mirrors because we want to know what we look at like in the light of day. Very much when it comes to the topic of the second coming, while immediately Christians love to run to this idea of speculating when it's going to happen, we want to talk about when it's going to happen. When we really read the pages of the New Testament, it is far more concerned with the ethical reality or the moral reality of whether or not we're preparing for it. It's far more concerned with the idea of our preparation. What, what are we doing when regards of awaiting that day where the fullness of light will come into the world 
for the second time in order to rescue the world. And so that brings us to our conversation today. And the New Testament also wants us to have a healthy respect and willingness to say that the hour could be at any moment. If God wants it to be now, it could be now. Um, the Apostles John, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, they talked about their days as the last days. And they didn't rebuke the people they ministered to uh, for considering that the end could be near. We can have charity with this idea. And yet also realize that if they could say these things, this is true of our present reality. There has never been a time in history where the Christian church is closer to the second coming of Christ than this very hour, this very minute, this very second. We are the closest of all in human history just by the, the reality of the time of the present that we are closer than any other to the end of this mortal world, to the second coming. And we need to appreciate that. We have a Savior. Um, and then in addition to that, there are these realities within our lived experience at the moment, which make us act, ask, is now the time? The big one in the media right now is, is the fact that there's trouble in Israel when there's trouble in the Middle East. Does that mean the end is close? Jesus tells us in the Gospels that the end days will be like the days of Noah. Well, what were the days of Noah? They were a sexually deviant kind of time, a time of gross wickedness, and yet there was a covenant sign and seal after those days given of God's love. And now we live presently in a day where that symbol, that sign, that covenant sign and seal has been co-opted, has been... Uh, What's, what's that term? Um, appropriated. It's been appropriated by things God says he hates in Scripture. So are we living in the days of Noah? It's okay to ask that question. It's okay to wonder. We're living in days of where, for instance, as we have AI technology, there is now the ability to create videos, create audio, create photos that are that we could not distinguish reality. That those screens that we look at, we are, we are now there at a day where those screens can just give us all sorts of falsehood. And it doesn't take profound computing or computers or, you know, uh, I'm sure any teenager without supervision could figure it out type of thing. There, we are in an odd time. We have consolidations. We have the digitalizing of currency. We have police states. We have social credit scores. We have unique illnesses arising. We have billionaires who were told to respect their opinions and they're so smart, openly in the public square saying that human population needs to be reduced to a, like 100 million people. And I haven't even mentioned the geopolitical realities at this point. But even more so than that, we've had great apostasy. 
We have denominations, and, and just pick your denomination where there's just wholesale apostasy. Uh, the biggest news, of course, this week is from, from Rome. Apostasy. Th saying things that God hates are good. Saying they can receive a blessing within the church. There's a lot of godlessness is what I'm saying. There's a lot of faithlessness. There's a lot of external things that are going on that force us to notice, hey, it's really dark outside at times. Uh, maybe the light's soon to come. And that's okay. It's okay for us to ask, is the second coming, coming soon? And yet again, we have a Bible that gets, tells us to get less caught up in saying when we think the second coming is happening, but rather telling us we need to be grounded ethically, we need to be grounded morally as the second coming of Christ approaches. It's far more concerned with that idea. And here in Hebrews, we have this wonderful sermon breathed out by God uh, for that first generation of believers in the apostolic time period. And it's taking a moment to reflect on Christ's first coming, reflecting on what he accomplished, and yet it also puts it in the backdrop of his second coming. So this is why we're going to begin here. This Hebrews passage is very much a passage trying to understand what God is the great Emmanuel of Christmas in that first advent, what he means for us and what it prepares us to look to in the second coming. What is being suggested here is that the blood of Jesus in the first advent cleaned everything Jesus wants to have cleaned before his second coming. Basically, when you look back at the first advent, you can in one sense say, everything the blood of Christ has touched has been washed in that blood. Part of the reason why 2,000 years ago, the apostles could start looking at the gospel advancing through all the known world, and they could contemplate and, and kind of encourage their, their churches to have a sense that the end, we don't know the time, the hour, is because of the fact that what we're actually just watching is the blood of Christ in one sense spread around the world, cover people, clean them in forgiveness, and, and you don't know when that's going to end. I don't know when that's going to end. And it cleanses them from sin in a legal sense before that second coming. And the reality why we still have time today is God still has households. He still has individuals he wants to bring to faith in him before the day is up, up and the end is here. So he isn't finished yet. The blood still goes forth to save people. And as the Hebrews passage makes clear, even as we look at the lighted mirror in this life, there's only so much preparation we can do. Uh, with this body of death we've been given. And yet, with, those, with ears to hear the word of God, whatever the blood has cleaned, it has cleaned from sin. You do not have to worry about the second coming. If you're sitting, you can hear the word being preached. If you know the word of God, as these hearers of the sermon in Hebrews would have heard, 
You don't need to worry about the matter of sin because even as we covered last week at this time, how did the very gospel of Luke begin? Why did he write the history? He wrote the history so that we would know what Jesus accomplished for us, what our God accomplished for us. And what he accomplished is the forgiveness of sins through his blood. And so when we look to the second coming, we don't have to worry about the matter of our sins being cleansed, our sins being forgiven, because it's been washed in the blood. It's been covered by the blood of Christ. You and I are forgiven in Christ. And so the second coming of Christ is not being us being made right with Christ in a legal sense. The matter of sin is dealt with. And it is not a reality that holds us back from being saved. And then, as Hebrews puts it in verse, chapter 9, verse 28, because you have been purified, when Christ comes for the second advent, it's not to deal with sin, but it's to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly waiting for him. Which then leads to the question, are you eagerly waiting the second coming of Christ? My wife and I celebrated 17 years around the sun this week for our uh, wedding, our, our being married. And we couldn't celebrate yesterday because her dad was being honored at an event. So yesterday was technically it. But um, I mean, we went to a nice breakfast in the morning. But. Uh, we, we celebrated on Thursday night. We went out. We went out to one restaurant, as Karen can tell you. They didn't have room for us. And so we then went to a Vietnam cafe in, in Telford. Vietnam cafe. Because only the finest things on, on our 17th trip around the globe. Um, yeah. Vietnam cafe says romance to us. Um, but... Before we went to this special dinner at Vietnam Cafe, I came home from working. And I took the time to change my shirt, to change my outfit. And when I arrived in my bedroom, my wife was taking the time to get ready for a night out. Why were we doing that? Because we wanted to be prepared to go out, to enjoy, to spend time with one another. There is a sense in which the second coming of Christ is wedding preparation. It's, it's, we're getting ready for a party. We're getting ready for a celebration. That's eager, and we're supposed to be eager about getting ready for a party. We're supposed to be eager about getting ready for a celebration. Nobody wants a bunch of people at the wedding that are like the curmudgeons. You know, I don't don't want to be at the way. No, you want people that are excited. And so here as we close, just looking at this brief passage of Hebrews, before we go into broader topics, notice that word eagerly. How eager are you for Jesus to come? You know, I, I'm someone who loves a road trip. I love to camp. I love, you know, some of you have seen the ugly things I've built on the back of my cars for camping trips. I love this stuff. I get all geeked out about it. You know what my Thanksgiving was? It was planning a, a, a camping trip I hope to do in the summer. 
I was just having fun doing that. My wife all the time, why are you spending so much time doing that? I just have fun. It's fun for me. I have like gas stops and all this stuff planned out. You know what I'm more eager about? You know what I'd rather have? Christ come back right now. That's that idea here. The idea isn't that this eager anticipation becomes like all-consuming and everything. It takes up all of our, our work, all of our days. Like we've got to really, but th- there's this eagerness and this desire for the better day coming forward. And so, now, we're going to leave Hebrews 9 and talk a little more about the second coming of Christ, the end times. And really, there are four popular views of the end times. If you were uh, at Sunday school, you got a cheat sheet. The Sunday school discussion became like a sermon primer. Uh, But of the four views, I would say three are biblically responsible. Uh, One is garbage. Uh, But there are things that all of them tend to agree on, at least the strong ones. Um, And the strong ones being historic pre-mill, all-mill, and post-mill. If you know of another view starts with a D, I'm going to explain to you why I don't think that's a great view. But these are things that all these views tend to agree on. Uh, there's always a few outliers, of course, but there are. this is on matters that have to take place before the end times can come. So Jesus actually gives us a list of things that he calls the birth pains that need to happen before the second coming. I'm going to go through the list. Many will claim to be the Messiah. Many p- people will be deceived by these false messiahs, these false saviors. Has world history had false saviors of the world? Has there been people like a Muhammad or a uh, um, Joseph Smith or even in in the early church period, were there other Messiah figures in Jerusalem at this time? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. So that's fulfilled. He also promises there needs to be wars, famines, earthquakes, and pestilence. Has there been wars, famine, earthquakes, and pestilence? Yes. He also claims that believers in Christ must be persecuted and killed. Have there been believers in Christ persecuted and killed? Yes. Yes. Believers will be witnesses of Jesus to kings. Have people witnessed to kings for Jesus and martyred for it? Yes. Many will turn away from the faith. Have there been great fallings out of the faith in church history? Yes. Betrayals by parents, brothers, and friends. Have there been betrayals in the Christian experience? Yes. yes. You notice a theme. There's, been a, is, there's going to be an increase in wickedness. Did we notice an increase in wickedness? Absolutely. Yes. There will be fearful events and signs from heaven. So, and, and there are recordings of those such things as well. And so how many birth pains have we experienced in the 2,000 years of Christendom? All of them. And we should expect to experience all of them because they're contractions, they're birth pains. They're cyclical. Uh, You know, when my wife was giving birth to kids, I could like set my watch to it. 
you could set your watch, and then like, the watch gets faster and faster. It's like, oh, it was 10 minutes, and now it's five minutes, and now it's three minutes. Now it's, oh, oh, oh wait, wait, get the nurse in. Type in, get the doctor. There's a cyclical pattern. All of these things have been fulfilled in one way or another. And at one point, there will be a contraction where the second coming will happen. We've had them all. That's how labor pains work. They come in waves, and you could say, okay, pastor, yep, we've had all those birth pains, but, and you're, you're going to suggest that Christ could come back whenever he pleases, and yet God has other things that he promised, other things that he set down, for instance, in the Olivet Discourse. So let me go down that list as well. Here are some other signs of the end, possibly. Uh, or some other signs of the end or the signs that need to be fulfilled before Jesus comes again. Jerusalem needs to be sound, surrounded by armies. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles. Now, for those who know their church history, has that already happened? Yes. Yes. It happened in 70 AD. also happened a little bit later, about two generations later. Uh, the Romans did it again. Uh, the abomination of desolation, that the temple would be desecrated. Has that already happened? Yes. yes, there is a fulfillment. This doesn't mean that there's not possibly another fulfillment to come, but there's been a fulfillment. That there is a great hardship and great tribulation like never before. For Judah which in the Olives course, uh, Discourse, Jesus was speaking to that, those people, what was their greatest tribulation? What time? 70 AD. That there would be false prophets, signs and miracles, the sun darkening the moon, the moon doesn't shine, stars fall, these are prophetic images, severe ocean activity, that people will faint with terror. My point in saying this is that not that these things can't happen again, but this is a good way to understand prophecy, and you really need to understand this so you don't read your Bible incorrectly. God wanted us as a New Testament church to always be ready, to always be waiting and wondering if he would return in our lifetime. And so in 70 AD, and really by the time the apostles are gone, you have a first kind of fulfillment for essentially all the main things that need to take place in the birth pains and other prophecies that he could have come then. And this is why, for instance, in the Olivet Discourse, he, he will say at times after, after preaching this, you need to be ready, you need to be ready, you need to be ready for that moment. Even things like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the man of lawlessness who sets himself up in the temple of God, receiving worship, basically claiming to be God. There's a sense in which Caesar did that. There's a sense in which Muhammad did that. There's a sense, in, and pretty much all the reformers were unanimous, and I agree with it. Uh, the papacy of Rome is a really good candidate for that. But there also is a possibility of uh, somebody with the power of modern technology setting himself up as a godlike figure to be reverenced and worshiped in the future. But the fact is, 
all the basic parameters of us have already been fulfilled that Jesus could come at any moment, any hour, any day. Jesus could come right now if he so ordained it to be. There is nothing preventing that trumpet from sounding in this moment for the second coming. That's the biblical, the New Testament idea, except for the fact that God keeps saying, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. There's still more that the blood has to cover. There's still more household the blood has to cover. There's still more individuals the blood has to cover. It's not yet, not yet. There's even that scene, I believe, in Revelation 6 where the martyrs are going, How long, O Lord? How long? And Jesus is basically saying, Not yet. Not yet. We are in the already, but not yet. That's where we find ourselves with the second coming. But again... Even as we say this, to make this point once again, there has never been a generation like our current generation that has more reason to wonder, is it now? Because we are closer than any previous church generation has ever been to the second coming of Christ. We are close to that moment. And that's the idea of Scripture. We are the people that are to look at that mirror and to look at the bright light of of what's on the horizon to come and to really prepare for that wedding feast celebration. Now, there's one more place in Scripture I want to go before we close. And it's the parable in the lampstands And the reason it's in Matthew 25, and the reason why I want to go here is the lampstands are also used as imagery for the church in Revelation chapter 1, in the the first kind of vision of Christ uh, at the beginning of Revelation when he's referencing the seven churches. He uses this concept of the lampstands. And we have in this parable in Matthew 25... Uh, a really helpful one when it comes to the second coming. It's of ten virgins, of course, who take their lamps to go and meet the bridegroom, to go to meet Jesus. Five are foolish, and they take their lamps, but there is no extra oil. Five are wise. They take oil in the jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom is delayed for a while. People stop believing the bridegroom is going to come. And the virgins, all the virgins, they fall asleep while waiting. At midnight, the cry rings out that the bridegroom is here. They all wake up and trim their lamps for his arrival. The foolish virgins, of course, their lamps are going out. They don't have the oil. The wise, and they ask ask the wise ones, hey, can you share some of your oil? And they can't. Because they won't be enough for both. And so the foolish leave to buy more oil. And while gone, the bridegroom comes and the wise enter the banquet. The door shutting and the foolish virgins can never come back in. And the warning of the parable is basically to keep watch. You don't know the day of the hour. Now, 
What is that parable getting at when it comes to the second coming? We started in Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 makes clear the matter of sin is dealt with for all those who are in Christ. But what is that oil? The church is fairly unanimous. From Augustine to reformers. And, and at first it might sound odd to Protestant ears, but what does the oil represent? Hear me clearly. The oil basically represents the oil, the works of our preparation. It's not that we're saved by our works. We're saved by Christ's work. But Christ's work in us also inspires in us sanctification, a growing desire to grow in holiness, a desire to go to the mirror, to, to, to prepare ourselves for this festival, this celebration that is coming. And five of these virgins, they knew of the details. They knew of, like, they could have passed a, a, a basic core class of Christian doctrine. They know where to say, uh-huh. They know where, like, the basics of the idea. And yet, they're not getting ready for the wedding. And again, when it comes to the second coming, the New Testament, first and foremost, looks at the second coming as a moral question. Are you getting ready for the wedding? My wife and I. When we got ready for our wedding 17 years ago, we decided to refuse. And, and I don't do this to judge anyone who made a mistake and went a different course. The blood of Christ can forgive us of all sins. All sins. And just because I got this right, trust me, there's thousand, numerous, too numerous to count of places I got it wrong. But my wife and I both decided to have, for our bachelorette and bachelor party, we celebrated together. We went to a meal together. We went, we played pool. Went to a pool hall, did that together. We had people angry with us. What kind of bachelor party did they want? They wanted a debaucherous bachelor's party. They wanted a gross, debased bachelor party. They wanted a wedding preparation that was disgusting. And actually, on my wife's side of her invitation list, one of the women who would have been a part of her bridal party did not come to the wedding because my wife refused to allow her to plan a big Vegas bash. The Christian prepares for the second coming. If you really believe that there's a wedding celebration to come, and we are closer than any generation has ever been to the imminent coming of Christ, what are you doing not getting ready for the wedding? You don't get ready for the wedding by debaucherous actions and godless things. If I had some sort of potential son-in-law suitor and I heard that a, a couple days before the wedding he just needed to get it all out of his system, I'd say, get him out of here. He's not for my daughters. And I'm not the whole holy, perfect God. But I know enough to know that. 
We need to get ready for the wedding. The wedding's coming. It's imminent. We need to live like it. We need to live as people, not trying to say, hey, I don't care if I don't have enough oil for my lamp. I don't care to get ready for the wedding. I'm living for now. I'm living for carpe diem. And here's the thing about the lampstands. As I said, in Revelation 1, the lampstands get connected to what? Churches. The churches. So here we are. Year of our Lord, 2023 going to 2024, right? Scary sci-fi numbers, right? What are the lampstands saying? What's the lampstand in Rome saying? Oh, you can get ready for the wedding with this lifestyle? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Medically castrate yourself. Do it to children. That's life-saving care. That's good. We'll give you a papal audience. Methodist church. Yeah, we'll, we'll say they can be married. We'll say that's good. All throughout, all these lampstands are not preparing you for the wedding. They're actually celebrating debauchery and evil, or they're just cowards, and they won't tell you. Because I get the letters, and I get the notes. Why was the Easter sermon so, you know... Why not just this? Why not that? Why the Christmas Eve? Why? Because we're getting ready for a wedding. And because we're getting ready for a wedding, we need to get ready for a wedding. We cannot be people who are basically with stains on our shirts and, and, and just don't care and, and giving ourselves into debauchery. We are people who in the dim light Awaiting the new rise, the second coming, the second advent of light. We are a people to cling to the hope that we have that is an assured hope. That's why this is such an ethical dilemma. That's why if you're someone who really is living a life where you're just not preparing for the wedding, it, it's not that you're... So much your works themselves can't be forgiven. They can be forgiven in this very hour, in this very moment. The blood of Jesus covers and cleans everything. But somebody who does not care, who's not changed by that, who doesn't want to prepare for that greater wedding feast, that party to come, you show that you don't know. You just don't care. You just want the debauchery. You want the debauchery to be true. So how are you getting ready? Jesus could come at any moment. He really could. As the parable of the lampstand shows. And there are people who are going to wish they prepared differently before Jesus' coming. While they knew him, they ultimately did not have any intimacy with him. They didn't care to get ready for the one that they supposedly loved. And there is going to be a moment of great regret coming, especially for those people. This is not like the rice man in the paddy field in China we're talking about. We're talking about people who know better. 
they're not getting ready for the wedding. And they use the name of Christ in disgusting ways to promote godless indecency and say you could live a lifestyle of that and never have to be challenged for it. And they will reap the whirlwind in judgment. If that's true of you today, please repent. Please turn away. Call to the one whose mercy is still available this morning. The blood is still going forth this morning. He's dealt with sin. Christian, please get ready for the wedding. Now is the time. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, the reality is none of us. We're all flawed. We all, when we look at the mirror, we have too many blemishes to cover in this life. Too many sins. But help us not to forsake your word, to forsake the things you call us to in order to be ready. Let us, Lord, uh, be faithful unto you and unto your name. Let us not be the people who go forth in debauchery and use your name to promote debauchery. But rather, let us understand that you came for, to forgive us of our sins so that we might live as those called to righteousness. You were the one who would save individuals and then would tell them, go and sin no more. Let, us, let that be our yearning. Let that be our desire. So that when you come in all power and all glory for a second time, whether you come for us in this mortal life as our days end or you come in the midst of this present life and we're caught up with you in but a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, let us be found as ones getting ready for you, our Lord, our Savior, our Bridegroom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.